This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll. You may be seated and you can turn to the sermon notes page in, in your bulletin. And I'll just let you know that things have changed since I uh, sent in the here's what to put in, in the bulletin. That happens. And I'd like to say that it's the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but I, I have a hunch that it might have more to do with the fact that I'm a P on the Myers-Briggs, uh, which can make sermon writing interesting sometimes. So we won't be following that outline, although it's really interesting. Go read John 6 sometime, and it's all there. Revival of Word and Sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. Instead, what we are going to be doing is we will be in John 6, which is our lectionary gospel for today. We finished up our series on the Miners' Prophets last week. We'll start a series on the Holy Spirit next week. So today we're focusing on John 6, our lectionary text. And in John 6, we're going to follow the crowd of disciples. And what we're going to see is that there are two responses to Jesus. At first, the crowd is really excited about Jesus. By the end of the chapter, we'll see many are walking away. So we're going to follow the crowd. Why do they turn away? And yet there's another response. It's Peter who stands firm and he says all the way to the end, no, Jesus, we're sticking with you because you have the words of eternal life. So we're going to follow the crowd through John 6 and we're going to see that many will reject the truth of Jesus when they finally hear it. But there will be some who stand firm to the end and the Bible tells us those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Back in the 50s, there was a famous psychological experiment. You've probably heard about it. Um, a man named Solomon Ash decided to test what happens to individuals when they're surrounded by a group who's all going one way when the truth should be going the other way. So he had three lines of different lengths, and then he gave another line, and he said, okay, those three lines, which one matches that line? And it was very obvious which was the true answer. But the subject of the experiment, the person who was being experimented on, didn't know that the seven or eight others in the room were all actors. And that sometimes they were instructed to give the correct answer. Sometimes they were all instructed to give the wrong answer. When they all gave the wrong answer, guess how many times the subject also gave the wrong answer? It was more than a third of the time. About 37% of the responses were incorrect when the whole rest of the crowd chose the wrong one. When all the rest of the crowd chose the right one, then the responses were correct 99% of the time. So the influence was the difference between 1% and 37% when the crowd was going the other way. If you've ever thought to yourself, it's hard to follow Jesus. Sometimes I feel like I'm swimming against the current. Then it may help you to know that Jesus said it would be this way. In Matthew 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. So Jesus' words there in, in, from Matthew 7 about the wide and the easy way versus the narrow and the hard way, that's a good way to understand what is happening in John 6 with the crowd, why they respond the way they do. Because at the beginning of John 6, this is the same crowd 
thousands of people thronging after Jesus, hanging upon his every word, being fed by the momentous miracle of the multiplication of the loaves, this same crowd, then after hearing Jesus' teaching, finding out what he's really about, at the end, what does it say in verse 60? If you're open to John 6, what does it say in verse 60? This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Who can listen to this? And down in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. A stunning shift from the beginning of this chapter to the end. But then, of course, there you have Peter saying, you have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. So yes, this is the sobering teaching that we find throughout the Bible and in our story today, that many will reject the truth about Jesus, and in so doing, they will reject the path to life. But anytime we hear a sobering word like that, we must always look for, well, what's the good news? The good news is this, that any who comes to Jesus, anyone who believes in him, anyone who desires will not be turned away, but they will find eternal life. So now go to verse 37. Here's the good news that we must hold on to and keep in mind as we have to listen to some of the other harder things that Jesus is going to say and that are going to happen in our story today. So verse 37, Jesus is saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's a promise from Jesus. And going down to verse 39, he says, this is the will of him who sent me. The will just simply means this is the desire. What does God want? God wants that I should lose nothing and no one of all that he has given me, that all who belong to God will come to me. I will raise them up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the message that Jesus came to bring. This was the message that by the cross and in his resurrection, he came to actually make possible. He came to make a way. And here he's telling the crowd, this is what I've come to do. And how do they respond? They're disappointed. They're offended. They're confused. Last summer, I decided to take each one of my older three children, Toby was still in the womb, each one of my older three children on a camping trip just by themselves. So I was planning three camping trips. It's a big commitment. And when I explained this to the children, inspired, by the way, by our bishop who, who gave a sermon on intentional parenting, and I said, oh, that's right. I'm going to be so intentional. I'm going to be very intentional. I'm going to give my kids this solid, just me-focused, undivided attention from their father. It's going to be great. I explained the plan to the kids, and my oldest two, who are identical twin girls, they looked at each other, they looked at me and they said, is sister coming with? I said, no, it'll be just you. I don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> I took all three of them camping together. <laughs> Apparently that was not good news for the girls. And what we see in our text today is that when Jesus is announcing his incredible news, most of the people refuse to accept it as good news. We'll see also how still today, that is how most people respond to Jesus. But we will also see 
how it is that we can stand firm even when many around us reject the truth. All right, so let's talk about the crowd being disappointed, offended, and confused. First, they were disappointed. When the crowd first came to Jesus, they were disappointed because he didn't give them what they wanted. So again, keep in mind the context is the feeding of the 5,000 had just happened the day before. The next day, they run around the lake, they find him in Capernaum, and they're asking him for another free lunch. But what does Jesus say? Look to verse 26. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He's saying the thing that you're asking for, it's too small. I've come to give you something so much better than this. But the crowd was disappointed. They, they wanted a free lunch. And still today, people turn back from God for the same reason. I said a prayer, nothing happened. Now I'm disappointed in God because I, I didn't get what I wanted. Or I, I don't have what I think I deserve or what I feel I have the right to. And if Jesus doesn't give me what I want, I'll go somewhere else to get it. We're so sure that we know what will make us happy. Sometimes people come to Jesus looking for the end of all their suffering and problems and the satisfaction of all their desires, and they think, great, now that I have Jesus, everything will be settled. But when life isn't immediately better, or when they still run into difficulty or suffering, or when they still don't have what they think they deserve or they should have or the kind of life that they think they need, then they no longer walk with Jesus. He has disappointed them. Now, just so you know, sometimes we want things that aren't good for us, and of course, God's going to disappoint us there. Sometimes we want things that are good desires, but God, for whatever reason, in his supreme authority, has chosen to withhold that good thing from us. So I don't want you to hear that if you're ever disappointed by Jesus, you've always done something wrong. That's not necessarily the case. But I do want you to hear that either way, when we run up into disappointment, we have a choice to walk away or to press in. Because what is tragic is that those who walk away don't know that if they only stuck it out to the end, if they persevere, then the fulfillment of everything they're seeking, the end of their suffering, the fullness of joy, the complete satisfaction of all their desires, it will come. And it will even exceed their greatest expectations. This is why Jesus, four times in the chapter here, in chapter 6, four times he says, about the last day, he says, if you believe in me, I will raise you up at the last day. I will raise him up at the last day. Four times, he's pointing to a resurrection hope. Because he's saying, in this life, there still will be trial. In this life, there still will be suffering, and you won't always get what you want. But if you believe in me and you hope for the last day, that's when all the promises of God will come true. And so Peter, in his letter, to the churches, Peter, who was there hearing Jesus talk about the last day, he begins his letter, his first letter, with these incredible words of hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And he goes on to say, what we've received is an inheritance that is imperishable. It can't be destroyed. It is undefiled. Nothing can mess with it. It's unfading. It will not fade. Now it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter is saying, look to the last day. Your hope is in the last day. Though he does go on to say, because you believe this, you will rejoice. Though now for a little while, you will be grieved by various trials. But this is so that your faith will be tested and the genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor on the last day. So trials will come. There's not necessarily an end to suffering now in this life. But Jesus is saying, and, and Peter echoes it, look to the last day. And if you do, you will have joy in the midst of suffering if you have the courage and the simplicity to hope for things yet to come. But sadly, many will reject the truth of Jesus and they will never find this out. They will walk away too soon. And only those who stand firm to the end and those who look to the end will be saved. So this crowd was disappointed, and in their disappointment, many left. Second, this crowd was offended. Look now to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Basically, they are saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? We know where you come from. You're one of us, and yet you're claiming to have some special knowledge or revelation. And indeed, that is exactly what Jesus was claiming. He claimed to be from heaven. He claimed to be from above, and he said, no one else can make that claim but me. No one knows the Father except for me. No one has the life that the Father has and is giving except for me. And if you want that life, and if you want this special knowledge of God, you can only find it in me. This exclusive claim that Jesus made offended them then, and it still offends people today. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, it goes from an invitation, feed on me, to a, a warning. Unless you do this, you will have no life. And if there's anything that our world gets offended by today, it is this kind of exclusive claim. Probably you've heard somebody say something to the effect of, well, maybe there's truth, but I don't believe that anyone can claim to have a special knowledge of the truth over against others. That's arrogant. Who do you think you are? And we might respond and say, well, I, I don't think I'm anybody. I mean, I'm not claiming this for myself. But at the end of the day, even that caveat, it will not suffice. It will not satisfy because in the end, what we do believe is that Jesus made that claim and that we believe he was right to do so. And that's still going to offend the world. When people realize the full implications of what Jesus claims, sadly for many, it will be too much. They will reject the truth about Jesus. But even when others are offended, those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Even when you watch the crowd walk away, 
even when you hear them say to you, who do you think you are? That's a time to stand firm. So the crowd was disappointed in Jesus. They were offended by him. And third, they were actually confused by some of his hard teachings. Let's go to verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So Jesus takes what was offensive, and he reinforces it, changing a few words to emphasize in graphic detail that he really meant Quite literally, not a metaphor. He really meant what he said. So up to this point, he's been saying, eat. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Eat this bread from heaven. At verse 54, he changes it, and he says, feed on my flesh. And in the original language, that word has a very coarse, almost base connotation. It's what we say about animals when they feed on their food. It means to crunch and to munch. Jesus is saying, crunch on my bones and sip my blood. No wonder they were confused. It's a hard saying. And, and they're very simply asking, how? They didn't yet understand about what happens when the Holy Spirit comes down on the bread and the wine of the Eucharist and makes it the body and blood of Jesus. That the Spirit makes something possible that apart from the Spirit is impossible. They didn't understand that yet. Instead, they're hearing Jesus say, crunch my bones. And saying, how? So now they're just confused. But this is why I love Peter. Do you really think that Peter had any idea, more than the rest of the crowd, what Jesus was talking about? I doubt it. Peter had no idea what Jesus meant when he said, eat me. And yet Peter says, when, when Jesus turns and says to the twelve, are you going to go away too? Peter stands up and with incredible boldness he says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. Yes, I don't understand what you're saying, but in this moment here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose to not lean on my own understanding and I'm going to trust you. And even though your words are hard to understand because they're your words, that's enough for me. Now on this particular point about feeding on the flesh, of Jesus and drinking his blood, it was cleared up about a year later, almost exactly a year later, when Jesus is in the Last Supper with his disciples, and he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. And he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood. And the disciples have the aha moment where, oh yeah, about a year ago when we were out on the hills and he said, eat my body and drink my blood, now we know how. And the church from the very beginning has looked at John 6 and this teaching of Jesus as saying, that's the Eucharist. It's one of the ways, along with the word, that he feeds us with his eternal life. 
So it was cleared up for them, but they had a good chunk of time where they didn't know what he meant by that. And for us, we have that similar, very common experience of reading the teachings of the Scripture or reading the commands of the Scripture, and we're saying, okay, Jesus, if I'm really taking this seriously, it means that you're asking me to do this or to believe this, and I don't understand it, or I'm not sure that I can do that. And because of that confusion around the teaching of the Bible, many turn back and no longer walk with Jesus. But it does not have to be so. There's a story about Billy Graham. Early on in his ministry, uh, he was at a gathering with other Christian leaders who were of a more progressive stripe, and they were challenging him. He said, do you really believe X, Y, Z? Or how can you defend the Bible when it says fill in the blank? And even Billy Graham in that moment didn't have an answer. He, he couldn't explain everything of what they were saying, their objections. And he went back to his room that night, and he, he looked through the scriptures, and he wrestled more, and he still didn't have an answer. But after a night of wrestling, he came to this conclusion from which he never turned back, this conclusion about the scriptures. I will choose to trust them and to follow them as best as I am able, even when I don't fully understand them. Sadly, many will not take this path. They will instead reject Jesus out of their confusion and their misconceptions about him and his word. But those who stand firm to the end will be saved. So how do we stand firm when we see the crowd walking away? Three thoughts. First, let's check our own hearts. What do we do when Jesus disappoints us? What do we do when Jesus offends us? What do we do when Jesus confuses us? So keep in mind, this story, this crowd, they're disciples. It's not like the other stories where he's fighting against and and the people who are riled up are, are the Jewish leaders who never really followed him to begin with. This story is about those who up to this point would have said, yeah, we're we're followers of Jesus. We walk with him until the point comes where they say, we will no longer walk with him. So for those of us who also call ourselves disciples, this is a sobering reality. What do we do when we are disappointed by Jesus or offended by him or confused? So this morning, is anyone here disappointed in Jesus? Your life as a Christian, and maybe precisely because you are a Christian, is not what you would hope it would be. It's not what you want. May I say this gentle reminder to you, in this life, you will not always have what you want. In Jesus, you'll always have what you need. And when you are tempted to despair, look to the last day. Let's check our own hearts and make sure that disappointment or offense or confusion don't become snares that will lead us off the path. 
Second, how else can we stand firm? We can stand firm by being ready, expecting rejection, to not be surprised when many turn back and no longer follow. I mean, imagine how this must have been for the 12. One day, they're on this incredible high of helping Jesus feed the multitude in this incredible miracle. The very next day, they're watching most of that crowd walk away with probably not a few side glances and funny looks at those who remained. Jesus said to his disciples, again, this is from Matthew's gospel, he said, you'll be hated. You will be hated by all for my sake. And he says in John's gospel in the upper room, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And how they treated Jesus in the story today is how you and I can expect to be treated. No one wants this. I don't like hearing this any more than you do. I suffer also from what the Bible calls the fear of man, which is the, the desire for the approval of the world around me. Nobody, we all like to be liked. We, we don't like to be not liked. If I had been in uh, the Solomon Ash psychology test and I'd been the subject, I don't know if I would have answered correctly or if I would have been swayed by the group. Many of you already frequently experience the feeling of rejection for being a Christian. You have that feeling of the world around you looks at you as strange or weird or even deeply wrong to be a Christian. This is only going to increase in the coming years. You and I are going to be the strange, weird ones in the eyes of many. So the sooner we accept this, the sooner we let go of the need for approval, the better. So Paul says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So we can stand firm by getting ready for rejection. And let us even today renounce the fear of man and pray for boldness. Third, we can stand firm by standing together. So after a few rounds of his experiment, Solomon Ash did a variation in which one of the actors became what was called the truth partner, where even though all the rest of the actors were giving the wrong answer, one actor would give the right answer. And in that case, when there was just one other voice speaking truth, instead of a 37% failure rate, guess what the failure rate was? It was only 5%. With just one voice speaking truth, instead of saying the wrong answer almost a third of the time, it was down to only 5%. Another variation is halfway through the experiment, he would withdraw the truth partner, and once that person, the subject, was left all by himself or herself, they again began to conform to the rest of the group. So this tells us of the importance of even just one voice that is willing to speak truth and to be the truth. One voice that will be the Peter saying, I mean, imagine how those other 12 must have felt when Peter stood up and he said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we need those electrifying declarations of truth when we're at those crucial crossroads. And we need to be those Peter words for others. Uh, we have a friend uh, who for a time was studying abroad in Europe. And during her stay there, she lived with a family. And the mother of this family, who was about the same age as her mother back in the States, 
the mother of this family sat down with her and began a conversation that was eventually an ongoing conversation. And she said, I'm really concerned about you. I see that you're not sexually active. And I think you need to be. Yes, that's what she was saying. It's not healthy. You need to experiment. You need to understand sexuality. You have to get out there. This is not good for you. The common wisdom of her day and where she was at that context. But after many conversations and a long time living with this family, our friend came back to the States and she was on the cusp of starting to live a life that was very different from the life she'd been taught to live and had been living up to that point and saying, maybe they're right. Maybe what I was taught was wrong. But I love this. She sat down with a good friend, a believer, who looked her in the eye and just said, you know that's not the way. And that's all she needed to remain faithful. So we need to stand firm by standing together. Let us cultivate relationships where Jesus is the central fact of that friendship or that marriage or that rooming situation. It's not just coincidence that we're all Christians or that in this relationship we're both Christians. We're actually making that a central component. We talk about our faith. It's a regular subject of conversation. We pray together. We read the Bible together. We encourage one another and we even challenge one another and speak truth when we have to. Let's have those kinds of relationships. Today you'll hear more about signing up for res groups. That's an incredible way. If you don't have regular Christian fellowship throughout the week, outside of Sunday morning, then signing up for a res group is an amazing way to have those intentional relationships where Jesus is the center. So I'd encourage you really to think about that and sign up if you're not already a part. So let's check our own hearts when disappointment comes or offense or confusion. Let's expect rejection and even now renounce the fear of man. Pray for boldness. And let's stand together and encourage one another in the faith. For those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.